Hello and welcome to The Magic 10, a podcast all about sparking creativity to ignite that 10% of media magic in just 10 minutes. I'm Sari. And I'm Hannah, but I think you guys know us from around the office. But we're also really excited to have a few special guests with us that we think are pretty creative and inspire us. Hannah, I want to chat to you. What is on your mind? What have you found recently that's interesting? I want to I want to know. This episode, I would really like to talk about a painting. Oh. Mm. So, oh, do you know what? I keep calling it a painting. It is a <laughs> photograph. So please forgive me. So it is actually the highest grossing photo of all time, but it's by a relatively unknown photographer called Ormond Gigli. <laughs> <laughs> Are you giggling? <laughs> I really, I probably butchered that. No, I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he was a relatively unknown commercial photographer and he took this picture called Girls in the Window. And it was in the summer of 1960. It was in New York. There was some brownstone that was about to be demolished just opposite his studio. And he really wanted to memorialize the brownstone. So he got 40 female models, got them to wear whatever they wanted and po- they posed in front of all these, all the windows. And he asked them to pose like they were giving a kiss. So it's pretty, I mean, it, you know, it's a bit 1960s, but it's actually a really fun, vibrant photo. But what I find the most interesting is that, again, highest grossing photo of all time. Wow. And the way that he did this, so being a relatively obscure commercial photographer, he, he knew he had a good product, but he didn't have the brand. So a lot of fine photography works on the scarcity principle where you release a few and people pay a lot for it. But actually what he's done is he's completely disregarded category norms. And uh, when he launched, he first put out hundreds of photographs and sold them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about Kmart prices here. The minimum that these guys are being charged out at is $15,000 US. So $15,000 to $30,000 per print. But actually people are still buying them and they have made $12 million in revenue purely from sheer volume. Wow. And people keep buying them. Apparently auctioneers keep coming through and asking for them. There's only a certain amount left and this um, almond giggly is actually quite old now. (laughs) Um, And he's not sure if this is going to keep he's going to keep printing and selling or the estate, I guess, once he's gone, is going to keep printing and selling. But yeah, I think it's really interesting because a risky manoeuvre completely disregarding category norms. Mm. But I think when we talk to clients a lot, that's often a way that you you stand out. Mm. And I think it's something that we need to think about more. So how can we completely, especially if, for instance, you don't have as strong as a brand or you're a challenger, and actually, that's what a lot of challengers do, right? Is they they challenge category norms and they just completely um, behave differently. Mm, wow. So is he currently just living off the money from this one painting? Picture? Photo. I It's a photo. I, I didn't see it. Yeah, it's a photo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did not. I haven't, I haven't heard of him doing anything else. I think this is, I mean, he's a one-hit wonder. Wow. But he's done well. But a one-hit wonder can go a long way. It sure it, can. It really can. Um, yeah, I don't know how to link that to, to our brands in the sense that we want them to do heaps of different stuff all the time. Mm. But you know what that does remind me of? Wear out. Because I think that people think that we've gotten over stuff pretty quickly. But often... It's actually because we just live and breathe it. Yes. 
there was the graph the was it Mark Ritson yeah um in five our five his the graph that he um posted at his lunch the other week said that most people think most of us in our world think that creative wears out really quickly but the reality is a lot of consumers really don't care that much yeah I mean some of the best ads are the ones that maybe have been going on for years and there's a story told and, you know, like the mainland kind of, I know it's, they do different ones often, mm. but that whole kind of the way that they shoot their ads, the kind of style, it's all the same. And I think we do get uh, a little bit ourselves, we get bored of stuff, but actually the audiences, they love a classic. They love something that's kind of been around for a while. It's nostalgic sometimes. Nostalgia's really in at the moment. What about you? What's been on your mind? So I saw this week... Uh, you know, you know Snoop Dogg. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of nostalgia, um, yeah, Snoop Dogg. He posted recently around how he was giving up the smoke. We all know what sm- uh, what uh, Snoop Dogg is known for. He, you know, we won't say it, but yeah. It, it seemed very interesting and everyone was like, oh my gosh, what do you mean, Snoop? This is your livelihood. This is what you This is what you know. I know. I was expecting more information, like he's some sort of health thing or something. So you saw it. You know I, what I'm going to say? I, I do know what you're going to say. <laughs> and this is amazing. Carry I thought on. it was such a great idea. Um, so yeah, Snoop Dogg. So he's partnered with a brand called Solo Stoves. Um, what they do is it's basically a stove or a fire pit that doesn't have the smoke. So, I mean, it's genius. It's genius. Uh, that's like my one bugbear with those beautiful fire pits you can get at, at summer. Like you just sit around them and then smell of smoke. So yeah, he did like a partnership with them. Basically, uh, that was the whole teaser, right? The giving up the smoke uh, <laughs> partnership. I just can't. With Amazing. Solo Stove. Um, and apparently he's also going to create his own line of Solo Stoves and he's going to have a bunch of other kind of products with them over time. So yeah. Wow, he's really passionate about going smokeless. He really is. But yeah, awesome kind of connection between the two. If I was sitting in a brainstorm thinking, okay, I'm solo stove. I've never done a large national campaign before. I mean, shoot for the stars. Get Snoop Dogg. It's such a great like connection. I wonder if they pitched the idea for him to him to um, give up the smoke or if that's something that he was like, yes, this is this is great. I know it will get him. I don't know. I think that I think some creative genius somewhere. I think thought of that line and then pitched it to him and he was like, love it. He has done so many different partnerships though and I think that that's kind of something we all know about Snoop Dogg is he's kind of crossed over from that back in the 90s, he was probably a bit more controversial to being mainstream, which is really fascinating. And he's worked with Pepsi, he's worked with Corona, Burger King. We know he's besties with Martha Stewart. Um, So kind of tapping into those famous people that actually have real good character and like something funny, personality. I I mean, look, New Zealand, we need to do better with this kind of stuff, I think. I I guess skinny famous names actually kind of does something similar, right? Tapping into the use of a famous celebrity and using that name as a way to draw people in and get people interested. So I think I think New Zealand kind of needs to take that more funny route because of the fact that we don't have the big, you know, access to the US and UK celebrities as much. Yeah, I do find it quite interesting though, because if you look at up and coming challenger brands like Zuru Edge, they've been able to get Kim Kardashian on the books. And I do not know how much that would have cost them, but it's usually well outside our budget. What did they do with her? They did uh, Dice & Co. Uh, oh, was it Courtney? One of the Kardashians. Uh, mm. They'd built a relationship with her. Also promoted Health by Habit as well. Oh, okay. So quite an interesting, considering it's a little startup Kiwi company. 
Speaking of the Kardashians, have you seen who Kim's, who the Skims brand have um, partnered with? The NBA? Yes. Yes. That is freaking genius. Mm-hmm. That is going to push her into like, I know she's already very, very rich, but that partnership is so fascinating. So basically, if you don't know, um, yeah, Kim Kardashian Skims brand uh, is, I think, supplying all of the NBA's underwear. Uh, so awesome partnership. I mean, it, it's just going to make her even more money. <laughs> and that's what we all strive for. <laughs> I wish. Ah. Oh. Great. Good stuff. Yeah, love it. So today's special guest is someone you all know and love, Brendan, our group strategy director. Hey, Brendan. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. A little, a little tired, a little hungry, but... Mm, uh, sorry. I'll get through it. No, it's fine. We it's gave fine. you the last slot. You did. You mm, did. Apologies. I am also quite hungry, actually. But <laughs> on to task. What is the biggest change you've seen in the work in the last five years? Well, I think... I'd, in order to answer that, I'd probably look at the last 20, which has obviously been like, I guess, the rise of, of digital, mm. whatever that means, digital, <laughs> anything that's, it's not really a helpful term, I don't think, but anything that's not analog, I guess, but you, you get what I mean. I think in the last 20 years, we've kind of ridden a, a roller coaster, you know, like anything new, we've taken a while to understand it. And some of the promises of digital haven't really eventuated some have, obviously. And I think that's for good reason. Probably we've understood that we've been, uh, as we've sort of learnt, we've understood that we've been focused on the wrong things. I'm talking specifically about like how we measure success. Oh, our favourite topic. You mm-hmm. know, uh, metrics and how, how, we, how we measure success. So, so the last five years, I think, and that's why I sort of went with 20. That's fine. You can change five. it. Change the, change I, I the can question. Change it. But what I've witnessed as a, as a result is a kind of renewed... Uh, refined attitude to measurement mm. and effectiveness. Mm. I think, you know, we've got a better understanding of, of digital's role in the media ecosystem. I think, you know, the whole right message, right customer, right time, all the time mm-hmm. thing, we've, we've moved on from that and we've got an acknowledgement that it can't do everything, um, but it's particularly good at some things. Uh, and, and, and that's a good thing. So, but I think what that stems from, which is probably a broader point is, I guess, the focus on academia and, and mm. research in the marketing and advertising world. Mm. That's really taken on a new platform, I think. Mm. Most marketers are, are now familiar with the science-based stuff that comes out of Ehrenberg Bass and the IPA, which have always been really useful. But now, we're, you know, we've got more recent stuff coming from Magic Numbers and Amplified Intelligence mm. and System One. It's, it's just a really great time to be in marketing and you know, the application of that evidence-based stuff has become a lot more widespread. So I think that's a long answer to your question, Mm. but I think that's the biggest shift I've seen in the last five Mm. years. And side note on that, is is there anything, like I know you've just rattled off a few, but if you were like brand new to the industry or, you know, junior, is there anything that like the first thing you'd kind of recommend someone read or like from a marketing science point of view? I know there's so many, so much out there. It would depend on the role, okay. but mm. but you can't really go past how brands grow as a yeah. as a fundamental as a foundation. And we have that um, book in the office, guys. Yeah, there's a few copies. I don't know if any of them are signed, oh. but that still is just as enjoyable. I do love love a signed signed book. Yeah. All extra mm. value there. But eat, eat your greens is another really good mm-hmm. one that doesn't often get a lot of uh, recognition 
probably in the media side of things, mm. probably more so in the account planning creative side, mm-hmm. but I think it's just as good okay, cool. or just as good. It, it, it's very useful, I should say, um, for everyone, no matter what, if you're in media or, or creative. Do we have a copy of that in the office? Uh, eat your greens. I'm, I'm sure we do. I think that was um, APG that did that. Um, mm. so yeah, I think we do. I think we've got one. Great. Um, got a little strategy library. If anyone wants to come have a look in the Strat Cave. Oh, and um, Richard Shotton, who does stuff on uh, behavioral economics. Okay. Mm. Oh. Really, really interesting. And like, you know, that, that that's the foundation. Understanding that stuff is a real foundational element of working in... Um, particularly in strategy roles anyway. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's kind of great uh, segue into our next question is, you know, what are those real skills that you think are really crucial for media strategists in particular, keeping in mind kind of how things are changing quite quickly? This is going to sound like a bit of a cop-out actually. Okay. <laughs> um, it's not as exciting as me saying something like uh, being AI literate, <laughs> Prompt which engineer. as you know, yeah, which it's as you know, happens important. to be a real interest of mm. mine. But it, so it would be easy to kind of like go down that road or whatever. But in a rapidly changing landscape, uh, predictability is very hard, right? Uh, and it's often fruitless. We've seen a number mm. of examples of that. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I love a, a future trends deck mm-hmm. um, as much as the next person. But I think ironically, it's the it's the fixed things um, that will be even more, it's probably not ironic, but it's the fixed things that will be even more critical in the future. And what I mean by that is what goes on between the ears, so to speak. <laughs> um, so what I just mentioned really, behavioral economic psychology, those hardwired, unchanging processes that run our lives without us really mm. knowing. I think understanding that, you know, understanding consumer psychology, why people think and feel and act the way they do, that I think is going to be just as, if not more important, as, mm-hmm. as we enter this new realm of just rapidly changing stuff, it's it's important to remember what remains constant because we know that's not changing anytime soon unless, you know, neural lace or whatever, neural link or whatever gets implanted <laughs> until that time gets implanted in our, uh, in our brains. That won't be changing. That's kind of scary. <laughs> Do you know what neural lace is? I don't know, it's but n- something Neuralink. in your brain freaks me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neuralink. I think um, Elon Musk is... Um, oh, behind but, uh, behind it, okay, yeah. Okay, no, yes, I have. Or one of, of the versions, yeah. And it's and basically a piece of lace that is an implant into the brain and it can, I don't know exactly what it does, but it can help certain cognitive processes. Sounds like a way to make everyone a little bit more homogenous, which I don't know if I like. Yeah, uh, well, who knows? Who mm. knows? I, I'm not going to volunteer myself up for it, put it that way. No, I just feel yeah. like the beauty of people is that we're all different and we all have different thought processes. And if we're suddenly all amazing at a certain thing that this Neurolace gives us, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think the the idea behind it, we're getting a little bit off topic. Yes, we are. That's fine. But I love it. (laughs) The idea is that it's connected to the internet somehow and not necessarily changing who you are um, in any fundamental way, but you, but helping you gather and retrieve information. I think that's how it works, but don't quote me. So everyone can be a smart ass if they want. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> um, I mean, look, there's so much we could take from that. I, I don't know where to go from here, but <laughs> I think we'll um, maybe come back on track and say, what is something that you're excited about for the future of media? That is, it's hard to say because there's so much going on. Mm. You can get quite overwhelmed. Maybe now I can talk about AI. You no. can take, talk about AI whenever <laughs> no, you like, I mean, Brendan. This, there is obviously some crazy stuff going on with um, AI and I don't, 
I think it is going to impact some things fundamentally. I don't think it's going to. I'm not. I'm not one of these people that thinks it's going to change everything all at once, all the time, or whatever. Um, and it's got some real limitations mm. for sure, especially in its current state. But I, I think it has the opportunity, or at least as it seems to be appearing now, um, to help people be more creative if they're not that creative. Not just in the industry, mm. you know. I, I mean, outside of the industry as well as as inside helping to get to creative outputs quicker is, is I guess what I'm what I'm saying and then that frees up more time to think about things more deeply mm. and you know um, build on what potentially came out of an AI system or whatever so I, I think it seems paradoxical to say that because these technologies appear to be creative in their own right that it's going to enhance our creativity mm. but I think it is because we're, we're able to visualize things so much uh, faster, more, mm. you know, um, and in more detail that we have in our minds and in our heads, I, you know, it probably doesn't it pertain so much to to media specifically, but the creative industries in general. Mm. So it's hard not to get kind of swept up in that. But I'm certainly under no illusions of its limitations, and mm. you know, it needs EQ for it to be truly effective. Yeah, we still yeah. need humans in the mix. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, a lot of people, I think, forget that. Yeah. So yeah. in terms of like the future of media, what what are your hot takes on, on that in terms of the immediate kind of changes we might see? Well, it's the same old thing probably of the last few years, which is fragmentation. Yeah. It's mm. going to be harder to... Re- I mean, you know, it's nothing original, but it, it, it that doesn't mean it's not true, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> fragmentation, harder to reach uh, certain audiences en masse, you know. I think voice will probably mm. have its day. They said they were. They said that a few years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it will probably have its day. I mean, but, but in a way that we haven't probably don't see it coming. You know what I mean? Like, oh. like the assistants, they don't seem to be taking off, right? So maybe it's going to manifest itself in some other way. But it's just so useful as a experience, as a user experience, and um, you know what you can get out of it. I, I just don't see it not surviving. Yeah. But, probably in a different form than your Alexa or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, I think it's a really convenient, um, I have an Alexa and I find it You just set mine off. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I do find it very, um, very easy and convenient. It's so nice not to have to use my hands. Um, (laughs) But uh, I agree with you. I think that there's more to it. I think it needs to become more entwined with what we're doing and I feel like that convenience play is key. It's untapped. Yeah. yeah. It's untapped and I think and yeah, you're right. It it potentially when it's entwined with other tech, like mm-hmm. for example AI. Like the the, mm-hmm. the the example that's always always comes to mind and this is creepy and I don't mean it like this. But you know, the the movie Her mm. that was a voice assistant, but it was run by a different type of AI, right? A generative type of mm-hmm. AI. Mm-hmm. Which was why it was so powerful. Whereas we don't Currently, our voice assistants aren't running on that hardware. But when they do run on that hardware, maybe that's when it becomes really interesting. And I don't mean falling full in love with your personal <laughs> assistant and all that wasn't stuff. Wasn't there an app that was like a personal... Oh, no, it wasn't a voice. It wasn't voice. You're thinking about the girlfriend apps? Yes, the girlfriend mm. apps. Oh, gosh, yes. That's, that, I, I worry about society with, with that <laughs> stuff, but um, maybe, maybe we'll leave that for another time. And just to wrap up, what is one piece of advice you'd give to someone who might want to work in strategy in the future? with all the talk of fun things to come? I guess because, you know, strategy or advertising doesn't exist in a vacuum. And I think obviously strategy stretches far beyond that that world. So the usual best advice 
that you that you sort of give, and I still think it's the best advice, is to develop a broad, uh, diverse interest in things, you know, culture, people, all, all that stuff, so that you can start drawing lines between them and uncovering things. And I think, yeah, that, that remains the fundamental thing. But I think to be a little different, I'd probably go with something else, and that's to uh, get comfortable with ambiguity. Mm. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, by that, I mean, like a strategist, you, you need to be comfortable with a few things, not ex- not explicitly seeing your output in the world, mm. right? So like the nature of the role means that you are, you're not creating an output that the consumer, your friends, your parents or or whatever explicitly sees, you know, be that, be that an actual ad or a placement yeah. or a, a media negotiation or whatever, right? So you're helping to orchestrate the elements of a whole rather than a specific thing. And that obviously is critical, but it, it exists behind the scenes. So that ambiguity of not seeing... Mm necessarily physical things out there in the real world, but knowing that you are in some way contributing to it, you know, you have to be comfortable with that, I guess. And further to that, it often exists ambiguity. I mean, when you're given like a problem to solve, sometimes you actually have to find the problem. Mm. It's like being given a, a blank a blank sheet of paper or, or something like that. So, it's, and it's not as process driven as other roles. So you've got to be comfortable with motivating yourself and, um, yeah, I would say, so if you can get comfortable with that early, ambiguity, develop competence, uh, confidence, I should say, in your process and ability while not necessarily having guidance, mm-hmm. whatever way you can try and get more accustomed to doing that, then I think it would set someone up really golden. So that's something a bit different perhaps than the usual, mm. which I still think is valuable, the wide interest. But Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Cool. Oh, well, thanks so much, Brendan. We'll wrap this up now. Really appreciate your time. That was really, really valuable insights. So You're welcome. Thank, thank you, you for having me. Thanks. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Well, that's all for The Magic 10 today. We're your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I'm Sari. Thanks to our special guest of the day and a really big thanks to our sponsor, NZME, for letting us do this amazing podcast. Remember, there are four podcasts in this series. You can listen to them on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. Thanks.